Yeah, come out for that. Okay, well, let's get into the Bible study for tonight. We're going to be in um, Exodus chapter 13. We may even dip into a little bit of chapter 14. And uh, just to kind of bring you up to speed with where we are, Moses, Aaron, are on an errand for the Lord to go before Pharaoh to uh, pass on God's command that Pharaoh let God's people go. Of course, we know Pharaoh was obstinate in not doing that. He has a succession of, of nine plagues that follow this command that he ignores or that he flat out uh, stays in, in objection to. And so Egypt is suffering terribly through these plagues. Frogs in their kneading bowls and lice and flies all over the place. Their cattle are dying. Hail and fire are coming from the sky. Darkness so bad that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And then finally, the last judgment, which is the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of every Egyptian family and even their livestock. And the only thing that saves the Jewish people from suffering that same judgment is the Lord institutes a, a, a ritual, if you will, a feast, a, a, a um, sacrifice, if you will, that will carry on even to this day. And what they're commanded to do is to take a lamb and to sacrifice the lamb, to take the blood of the lamb, to paint that blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their doorways so, so that when the angel of judgment comes over, he will pass over them because they have been covered in the blood of the sacrifice. And of course, we've spoken for the last couple of weeks about the significance of the symbology of this, of this ritual that God has given to them, that it becomes really the foreshadowing, the paradigm for the plan of God's salvation by sending his son, the perfect lamb, the lamb without sin, the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world, that all of this would be portrayed beautifully in the Passover ritual. And, uh, and we saw also the Lord referring to this feast of unleavened bread that will, that will pick up right as the Passover has been celebrated and carry on for the next seven days. We're going to be talking all about that tonight. And so now, um, in, in the end of chapter 12, we see that the Lord does indeed execute that judgment upon the Egyptian people. The Egyptians now are very, very convinced that the hand of God has brought judgment upon them for their disobedience to his commands. And indeed, the children of Israel are not only allowed to leave, they are commanded to go. And yet before they go, much to the promise that God gave to Moses, I think back in Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites plunder the Egyptian people, not, not through force, but by merely asking. They receive a treasure trove of precious jewels, precious metals, uh, garments, fabrics, etc. And, uh, and now they are leaving the country and they are heading to the promised land. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 13. So we read there in verses 1 and 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Now we want to stop there and, and uh, understand what the Lord is commanding Moses. Notice he's not saying, Moses, all of the firstborn of the Israelites are going to be killed in a judgment. No, he's not saying that. He's saying something very, very different. He says there that the, the Jewish people are to consecrate to him all of their firstborn. And 
so we need to understand what does he mean when he speaks of consecration. When that word is used in the biblical context, it means separating oneself or separating something from all the things that are unclean, especially anything that, that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. So it speaks to sanctification, which is being set apart and being set apart for holiness and for purity. Indeed, anything that we offer to the Lord, whether it's an animal sacrifice, whether it's a portion of our wages, or whether it's even our own selves, our own existence, it should be consecrated. That is to say, it should be set apart and purified to be acceptable before God. And there are three reasons that we can point to as to why the Lord would make this, this command on his people. He wants to do a number of things through the execution of this command among the children of Israel. First of all, it underscores the fact that Israel was God's firstborn. Uh, in the whole mindset of the priority of the firstborn that we'll see played out in this chapter, but you see it throughout the Bible. Um, that whole thing is, 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 it revolves around the idea that there is a special quality to the firstborn. It is the favored one. Believe me, it's hard for me to say that because I was the fifthborn in my family. Okay, so I was a doormat. I was an afterthought. I was actually a mistake or an accident, okay? Uh, but the firstborn, uh, Israel was God's chosen people. It, he, he had the benefit, which many of us don't have, of actually choosing his firstborn. Among all of the peoples of the world, of all the single individuals that he could pick to be the progenitor of his special people, he made the choice of Abraham, then transferred that promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and, and then obviously through the patriarchs. So first thing he's underscoring here is this is a memorial to the fact that Israel is God's firstborn, and this particular ritual honors that fact. Secondly, it is thought that the firstborn is the best, okay? Uh, the best is always what is given to God. The first, the best. Uh, look at Prince Harry from the UK. Look at that poor man's casting about for attention, casting about for significance. Meanwhile, Prince William is just looking as regal as ever. He got the, you know, the big, tall, beautiful wife, and, and, and you know, he's, he's legit. He's got credibility and, and his brother now is in Hollywood going down the drain um, first is best in the mindset of the people of this time and so by asking that the consecration of the firstborn be given to the Lord again both with the people and with their livestock this underscores that what should be given to the Lord is the highest priority highest quality um, that you can give and then finally, this particular consecration rite is something that becomes a, a reminder to succeeding generations because it's something that the Lord has commanded that they do and that they pass down through the generations. It's, a, it's, a, it's yet another way that God can continue to have his people connected to him. And believe me, this is, you know... There's a lot in the modern thinking, the modern psyche of, of this nation 
that, that has a very low view of tradition and of legacy. Everything is all about let the next generation figure it out for themselves. Let them choose their own way. And, and that is just such flawed thinking. Um, we, are to, we, we have not only a responsibility, but we have a deep desire to pass to our children the very best of what we have. This is one of the great, experience, uh, the great values of experience. It's like, hey, son, you don't have to do the stupid things I did. Here's the very best of what I've learned. And, you know, the, the, the kids that, that get it, they, they receive that and they're happy about that. And so this was a very important thing that God commanded of his people. And I'm here to tell you that, that the idea of that command, the, the logic of it, the spirituality of it has been passed to us as Christians. Paul the Apostle uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, he said this to us, obviously to the Corinthian church, but it, it's to us as well. He said, come out from among them and be separate. Now, when he talks about come out from among them, keep in mind, Corinth was a very evil city. Uh, Corinth would make modern-day Las Vegas blush. And yet, here's this church that's founded in the midst of all of that, and he's, he's urging those people, come out, be separated from them, do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. See, the Lord is looking for people who are willing to place such high value on the relationship with him that they're willing to walk away from and forsake that which they were mired in before meeting the Lord. And this indeed is what Paul the Apostle would later command in a much more succinct and direct way in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not be mired in the world. Be set apart from the world. He says that by saying this, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, that first verse of that, that says um, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This had a profound uh, impact on Michelle and me as we were mulling over the idea of leaving our former life to go into full-time ministry because we were saying, okay, you know, people put a lot of attention on giving, you know, a tithe and, and the benchmark that people use is the one that was in the law, which was 10%, uh, which is not exactly accurate because there's a whole lot of other aspects of the whole tithing thing. But, you know, in general parlance, 10% was the way in which most people think about it. And we thought, well, what about the other 90%? I mean, if, if, if the general approach to, to what we give to the Lord is first and best, um, then you could put right in there most or even all. You, you could say, okay, why not, why not take what the Lord has given to us and, and put it back as a living sacrifice? That is to say... We, we didn't basically, you know, sign our check, checking account over and now we're, we're destitute or whatever. No, we took all that we were and we said, okay, let's employ that. Let's give it back and use it, you know, allow the Lord to use it for what he's trying to do. And that was something that, that affected us in looking at that is to say, okay, what does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Obviously, it doesn't mean crawl up onto a pile of wood, uh, stab yourself just as you're lighting the fire, and, and then, you know, you're, you're done. 
Um, what does that actually mean to be a living sacrifice? I think what it means is what the Lord is asking his people in verse 2 of chapter 13. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, which is to say, literally, give back. It's kind of what Hannah did with Samuel. Give back to the Lord this precious life. Now, uh, this is something, again, that we we can mull over and all that, but consecrating our lives to the Lord is, is to say that we step out of the paradigm of the world, we step out of the milieu of the world, and we, and we attach ourselves to the Lord person to person, but also in the mission of our lives. And, and that doesn't mean that everybody has to go and plant a church or, or be a pastor or be a missionary or anything like that. You can do this in the context in which the Lord has planted for you. Sarah Lynn, you're an author. You could write about anything you want, but you choose to write books that have a Christian inspiration to them. So you're, you're taking your talents as a writer and you're, you're putting out there things that people could read among any other thing they could read that has you know, a spiritual underpinning to it. That's what I mean when I say you can take your life as you know it or as you're gifted to do and you can consecrate that for the Lord. You can purify it, and then you can offer it. And so this is, this, is, this is a transferable concept that he speaks to here with his people. And then he goes on to speak about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He said, and Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day... You are going out in the month of Abib. Now, that month of Abib will later be called Nisan, um, but it's the same thing. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Now this idea of uh, the feast of unleavened bread, here's how, it, here's how it tracks. The Passover was eaten on the evening of the 14th day of Nisan. On the 15th day, that becomes the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it starts with a feast, and then seven days transpire, and on the last day, there's a feast. So, so it starts with a party, it ends with a party. Uh, it's something that was not a somber thing, it was, it was a joyous thing. And it illustrates the principle that we can only walk in purity with the Lord after the blood deliverance of the cross. The Passover is celebrated. That is to say, the, the lamb is, is sacrificed. Uh, the blood is spilled and offered. And then this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which really symbolizes a, a removal of the curse of sin, because leaven always has that symbology of sin in, in Scripture. And so this idea that uh, a, a walk of purity, we, we've been relieved from the penalty of sin. We know that we haven't been relieved from, from never sinning again. 
but we know that God's promise is to continue to sanctify us, which is a, is a progressive consecration of us, if you will. But we walk in, in um, positional purity by virtue of the sacrifice that the Passover represents. So you see how the Lord constructed all of this so perfectly. And if we were in a different uh, Bible study, we could literally go through all of the feasts that the Bible has all the feast days and you'll see how every one of them is, is beautifully set in, in the context of the overall plan of salvation that God has. And each one represents, um, yeah, it represents uh, uh, the wonder of God's salvation for us. And, and so on the seventh day of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's this wonderful party or feast. And, and this shows the joy that comes with being relieved, relieved from the bondage of sin. Now he goes on to, again, speak to this idea of legacy. The importance of making sure that those that follow us understand the significance of the things that the Lord did. You pick it up in verse 8, and he says that you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, what the Lord is addressing here is the tendency that we all have. And, and believe me, pick whatever miracle that God has done or could do in your life. We're going to see very quickly here how the people can be so weak in the knees in terms of their faith in spite of things that God has done that are awe-inspiring and, and just literally miraculous. But the Lord knows us, right? The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And the Lord knows that we're, at any point in history, we are one generation away from people completely being divorced from the Lord. Uh, we're we're, we're kind of, you know, as people of God, we're kind of looking around at the, at the current generation, younger generations with great concern because um, through actions of government and societal uh, pressures, the word of God has been excised from most of the mainstream of life. And so we, we continue to have these generations coming along that are further and further divorced from the glory of God, from the power of God, from the salvation of God. And we see in our society the manifestations of that. You know, everybody wants to ban guns because of mass shootings. I've never seen a gun leap off the shelf and shoot anybody. What happens is people take guns, and if they don't have guns, they use knives, they use automobiles, they use poison, they'll use whatever they can. But we have murderous intent in the hearts of so many people, and particularly young people, that go in and shoot up schools full of little kids. How does that happen? It's because people forget the power, the glory of God. And so, of course, the Lord, knowing this, he tells them right there in verse 8, go and tell your son in that day, saying, what we are doing here, why we are having this Passover meal, why we are having this Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is meaning to this. This Sunday, we're going to be taking communion. And the Lord gave that ordinance to us 
so that we would be able to explain. We would literally be able to preach a sermon in the very act of taking that communion. In fact, when you read the old King James version of what Paul the Apostle says in the Corinthian letter about communion, I think it's in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, around about there, and he talks about how they were taking uh, the communion right in a, an unworthy manner. And he talks about how when you, when you take communion, it says you do shoe, which, which is a way of expressing that you literally proclaim something. What are you proclaiming? You're proclaiming the death of Jesus on the cross and the significance of its atoning power to take us out of the, the clutches of sin and to give us eternal life. And, and so we, we too have this, this ordinance that God has given us for the very same purpose that the Lord is telling them to do these things, pass it on to your children. And then he says in verse nine, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now, what you're seeing there is one of the um, proof texts for why uh, the Orthodox Jewish people uh, employed what we know of as phylacteries. For those of you who are on the plane with us, uh, when we went to Israel in February, much to our chagrin, after, uh, after having a meal on the plane and having you know, glasses of water and juice and everything, and now everybody thinks, now would probably be a good time to use the restroom. Uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of Orthodox Jewish men on the flight, Jewish families, but Jewish men who right after the meal took the occasion to gather, and I mean not like two of them, like 30 of them, in that opening that you have near the restrooms. And they all had on their yarmulkes, and many of them would put on a hat above that. They would have their prayer shawls on, and they would have phylacteries on. And these phylacteries, it's a leather box, uh, with tied to the forehead with leather cords and also on the hands. And in those boxes, presumably, are scripture. And um, the, the, the scriptural basis for that practice is in part what we're reading here. And there's, there's scholarly uh, difference of opinion as to whether this, this passage here that we just read is a literal prescription to do that or whether it's a figurative suggestion that, look, if something is right here in your forehead, like we even say now when we're telling somebody something important or we need to remember something important, we tell them, hey, you better tattoo that on your forehead because this is really important. And so there's a thinking that, you know, by using that imagery of it's on your forehead, it's on your hand, you're not going to miss this and you shouldn't because of its importance. Jesus uh, spoke in Matthew chapter 23 Verse five, he, he basically chastised the Pharisees because they were making an abuse of this practice by kind of competing with one another as to the size of their phylacteries. And, uh, you know, before you know it, people got shoe boxes attached to their head with scripture in or whatever. And Jesus just said, look, you guys, you're missing it here. What, what you were commanded to do was to have the scripture in your mouth, which is to say, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus also said that. So you need, to, you need to consume scripture such that it is what comes forth from you. You don't literally have to show everybody how devoted you are by having this thing hanging on your forehead or whatever. 
and, and frankly, if people want to do something like that as a memorial to themselves, I don't have a problem with that. What, I have the same problem that Jesus expressed, which is when the purpose, the motivation of it is to, is to exude this piety so that you could, you could kind of show yourself to be more spiritual than the next person, I think that does disservice to the Lord. And I think it misses the point of what Jesus was telling us and what, of course, the Lord is telling his people here. Interesting parallel. We know from many of our studies that Satan is uh, very crafty. He's very powerful. He's very smart, but he's not very original because many of the things that he does are blatant ripoffs of what God has done or commanded. And so guess what the Lord or uh, Satan will do during the uh, the tribulation period. You know it well. It's found in uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. So it, it's literally a blatant ripoff of the Lord telling his people, this is so important to your life that it should be as if it was tattooed to your forehead or on your hand. And now, the enemy is taking that idea of the obviousness and the importance of what his mission is and literally requiring that people who want to do commerce or whatever have either the number on their forehead or on their hand. So that's, that's, we're, we're used to that, right? So we carry on verse 11 and we come to what is known as the law of the firstborn. And this is really now a... Um, a uh, further embellishment of what we've already seen with this idea of consecration. Verse 11, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, the first question I'm sure that comes through your mind is what, what does Moses have? What does the Lord have against donkeys? Well, what he's saying is that every firstborn animal, because animals were a sign of wealth and they weren't a sign of wealth. They were actually a currency of wealth in, that, in those times. So to have animals, to have flocks was to have wealth. And so he's saying that in the case of the firstborn of your animals, you're to give back to the Lord or sacrifice the firstborn. It was considered to be the best, the first, etc. But that applied to a clean animal like a lamb. A donkey was an unclean animal. But yet, because it's, a, it's, it's an instrument of wealth and to honor the Lord, we're giving him first fruits, best fruits, even in the case of a donkey, you consecrate that, but because you can't offer it to the Lord, what you would do is you would offer a lamb in its place, because a lamb is a valuable thing also, and it's clean. If you didn't have a lamb to offer or didn't want to, then the only other option the Lord left you was to, was to basically kill the donkey, break its neck. Donkeys were very valuable then. They were a mode of transportation. They were a beast of burden. And so um, this, is, this is what the Lord is commanding here. And this, um, this idea of offering a firstborn, how did, you, how did you consecrate or offer the firstborn child? You, obviously, you didn't kill it. 
what they would typically do is they would redeem it either through the offering of an animal or, or, or literally the conveyance of money. And I think the way it's done now in Orthodox Jewry is, is through a payment of a certain amount. But the child is literally offered to the priest or the Kohen uh, on a platter like, like it would be offered. It's obviously not. The child is perfectly safe and loved and all that. But then there's a transference of money that is the consecration representation in that, in that, uh, in that instance. Um, and then we pick it up in, um, in verse 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By the strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You see how important it is to the Lord that they, they understand the experience they had in bondage and how, that, how limiting that was on their lives. And then the miraculous deliverance from that bondage that the Lord engineered on their behalf so that the promise that Lord, the Lord had made to their, their patriarchs hundreds of years before that would come to pass. The Lord is very, very jealous of the promises he makes. He does not want those to be forgotten. He does not want those to be dismissed. He does not want people to believe they've been abrogated as so many people in the modern church today believe. These are things that are desperately important to the Lord and should be to God's people because this is why these accounts are here. To read these things is to reinforce in our minds, just as the Lord wants it to be reinforced in the generations that follow this generation, that we know the faithfulness of God, the power of God to deliver his people, protect his people, and to deliver on the promises he's made to them. And so in verse 14, he's making it clear. This is what you need to tell your children. And they ask you, gee, dad, why are we offering this lamb uh, back to the Lord? Why, why did we break the neck of this donkey that was just born or whatever it is? Verse 15, and it came to pass when, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see, he's, he, he's saying to his son, son, this is why we do this. The Lord delivered his firstborn, that is us, and therefore... In honor of that, in recognition of that, we offer back to him the firstborn. In the case of children, it's a redemption through the payment of animal or, or money. In the case of an animal, it is literally offering the life of the animal, assuming it's clean. And, and this is to show that we worship the God who delivered us. And this, this is the same way we need to view things that we offer back to the Lord, whether it's your time, whether it's, it's uh, some gifting you have you give back, whether it's money, whatever it is, you're giving back to the one who has saved you for all time. It is an act of worship. By the way, excuse me one second, Art. This is why we, we never pass a hat here. We never pass a hat. We never, I mean, if we come to a passage where tithing is taught in the scripture, we teach it. We, we teach it, as I've done a little bit of tonight. But it's not something we focus on any more than I would come off the stage, sit next to somebody during worship time and say, you know, you're not really singing very loud. 
It does, or, or you're singing, but it doesn't sound like you really mean it. I mean, your, your time in worship is you and the Lord. Everything about worship is you and the Lord. There, there is nothing anyone else can add to that. I mean, we can certainly encourage it. We try to do that on a Sunday with the worship team or whatever. But, but it's you and the Lord. And, and that's, that's what's going on here. Did you want to? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and this is what all good Jewish parents did from this time on. It was that important. And you see even Jesus' parents, uh, they're, they're actually following the very command that Jesus ultimately would follow and then, and, and then teach in another way. So it's all laid out here um, originally, and this is what becomes the, the model that goes on uh, as we move through time. Uh, verse 16, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes for the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so you see here clearly um, the Lord wants this to be painfully obvious to every Jewish man and woman who experienced this, but not only them, he wanted them to pass it on to those that would follow after. Now we pick it up in verse 17 and we see now the aftermath. Children of Israel have now moved out of, of Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land. And we read in verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, when we were in uh, Israel in February and we were going along that coast road our guide the guy that was with us during the Galilee time he referred to that road he said this is the Via Maris which is the road that tracks along the sea and that's the road that we're reading that they didn't take so th that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines what he's saying is the Philistines land was right along that coast and and that would be the shortest route into the promised land. But there would be two things they would encounter there. First of all, they would encounter outposts of the Egyptian army that may you know, be an obstacle or it may, may be something they would have to meet with force. And then, of course, there were the Philistines themselves, which would be a concern because they were a, a very um, powerful nation. And so the Lord says, okay, I'm not going to test them in this way now because this is also new. He knows that the faith that the Israelites have at this stage of their, of their now their new nationhood, it's, it's a nascent faith. It's a weak faith, to be quite honest. You'll see that played out uh, very, very poignantly here. But um, he chooses not to bring them into the temptation to say, this is too bloody hard. We need to turn around and go home. And you'll see, even in this chapter, they still want to do that, or actually in the next chapter. Um, and so he doesn't, he doesn't put that on them because he knows the state of their heart. And I just, again, I want to draw another parallel to the way in which the Lord views us. Now, I'm going to read you a passage of scripture that I've read through many times. 
And I look at it and I say, Lord, I know it's your word. I know, it. I, I know everything you say is true. And, and I have no reason to believe this is not true. But honestly, Lord, there are times. Here's, here's the verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, what the Lord is saying there is, okay, I know your heart. I know who you are. There's nothing that you're ever going to encounter that other people similarly situated, maybe even in the exact same place in their growth as a believer, there's nothing that you're going to experience that's new here. This is all, you know, and as we've said, the devil's a lot of things, but he's not real original. So he keeps using the same lies, the same temptations, the same whatever. And the Lord knows, I mean, the Lord doesn't promote evil. The Lord doesn't author evil. We know that, right? But no evil can happen but that the Lord would permit the devil to do what the devil would do or that he would permit that you would do what you would do. And so there are, there are seasons, there are, there are times along our continuum, continuum of sanctification where what the Lord may allow today, he wouldn't have allowed 10 years ago. He would have, he, he, he would have had things going differently. And I think in this case, knowing, okay, yeah, it's the shortest way, but it's not the best way for what I'm trying to do with these people. Because we know that that what the Lord was doing with these people was not just tied to the destination and also a heck of a lot to do with the journey itself. And as we make our way through Exodus, you're going to see that in spades. But uh, he, he holds them back and uh, instead he takes them by way of the Red Sea. Verse 18, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now get this in verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Sukkoth to, and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Now, if you'll recall when we were studying in Genesis, the very last chapter as we are looking at now, the end of Joseph's life. We saw how Joseph ended up uh, being sold into slavery by his brothers, being a slave, then being a prisoner, then being a prophet, and then being raised up. And, um, and he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he ultimately dies in Egypt. And before he dies, this is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 24 through 26, he says, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, there are many scholars that look at this verse 26 of chapter 50 and they conclude, and I think it's a fair inference, that he was never buried in the ground there. He was put in a coffin. He was probably mummified like they, was the practice of the time. And he was put in a coffin, probably at his, his direction, so that when the time came, 
And now, let me just say, there, there are people who disagree with that theory. There, there's a, a lot of Jewish tradition that says that he was put in a coffin and was actually put into the Nile River. And then there's a, a number of different theories about how that body ultimately was brought up supernaturally. Um, scripture doesn't lay any of this out clearly, but the inference that many draw from verse 26 of chapter 50 is that he was not put into the ground. And the way in which he instructs the people in chapter 50, his brethren there, is as if to say the day is going to come when the Lord is going to deliver you, his people, out of Egypt and take you back to the land he's promised to your forefathers. And that then and only then is when I want to go to. Obviously, I'll be dead, but my bones, my remains, I want to go back to the land then. Interesting little side point. Jacob, his father, also died in Egypt, if you'll recall when we read in Exodus, or in Genesis. But his, his remains were immediately taken from Egypt back to the land of Canaan and buried there. And, and, and that's because he, he did not have this same tie to Egypt. First of all, again, this is another point that scholars, some scholars put forth. Joseph was a slave. Um, he... It's believed his status as slave didn't change, and so technically his remains were the property of Pharaoh. And so it was not, shall we say, legally permissible that those would be taken anywhere until Pharaoh lets God's people go, in which case then they go and he goes with them because now their slavery has been ended. They've been freed, and so he's free to go. So there's that theory there is, of course, the idea that Joseph so identified with his people that we are here in bondage in Egypt, but when we are released by the Lord, that will be the time when I will want to go back and, um, and um, go back to the land that God promised us. And so we read in verse 21, then the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, this is one of the uh, most comforting things you'll read about the way in which God deals with his people anywhere in the Bible. Think about this. This is a people who have been basically camped inside of the nation of Egypt. They were not a nation unto themselves. They did not have the freedom to go traveling around the Middle East. Now they are leaving. They they have left everything they've known because now it's been 400 years since the Israelites have been in Egypt. So that's all they know. That's what they're comfortable with. Even if it was miserable, it's what they knew. Now they're heading to an uncertain destination uh, with conditions that are uncertain, with the, the, um, the risks of a trip like that. And they're doing it because Moses is telling them that this is what God has told us to do. Now, for most of us, if that's all we heard, that would be a big pill to swallow. But here's God putting in front of them a pillar of cloud, which I'm sure the the dimensions would be such that whether it was 600,000 people or 2 million people, everyone could see that. And it's leading them. 
And then at night, when we're all concerned because of what we don't see and what we don't know, there's a pillar of fire that is giving them light. And if they're traveling at night, then it's giving them direction. And this is the Lord's way in which he is caring for these people. He's staying with them. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is literally guiding them. He is doing what the Lord promises us, which is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And this pillar of cloud and fire is God's picture of his faithfulness. It's a lesson that God does not leave his people. And boy, as we make our way through their journey, we're going to see that there's a lot of times when you would want to say, all right, I'm done with these people. Now, the Lord will actually say such things. When, when, he's, when he's testing Moses' resolve and saying, I should just annihilate these people and I will raise up a people even better than these people. And you know what Moses refers back to when, when he's having this, this conversation with the Lord? Uh, This, I think, is found in Numbers chapter 14. And he's pleading with God not to destroy the people. And what he tells him is, Lord, you led us by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And peoples around the region, they know that. They know you delivered us through the Red Sea. And now you're going to allow a situation to occur where the peoples around us will say, well, this is the God that part of the Red Sea and, and destroyed the Egyptian army. This is the God that led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, and yet he couldn't deliver them into the land of Canaan. Hmm, what kind of God is that? In other words, he, he didn't appeal on the basis of the goodness of the people. He knew God was right. These people are miserable, stiff-necked people. He appealed to God on the basis of the integrity of God's word. And of course, this is... You could say, well, gee, then I guess God changed his mind. Hmm, Moses, you got a good point. No. The Lord was orchestrating an event where Moses could articulate the truth of the matter. And I think that that's something that happens often in our life too. Is that God gets us to a place where we are singing from his song sheet about ourselves. And and this is what happens there. But, um, you know... Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do to me. We have something even better than a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. We have the full counsel of God in our hands and between those two things, we got a map and a compass. And we have an assurance that not only will God not leave us, he lives in us. And so, um, again, so much of what the Lord is doing with his people, as, as, as first when he called out the patriarchs, then in the bondage, then in the deliverance of the bondage, then in the wilderness experience, all of the people, well, we don't have to read about that. It's a bunch of, it's a small country of people that, are not relevant anymore. And this nothing could be further from the truth. All of the, of the structure, the construct of our relationship with God and the salvation he's won from us, it's all portrayed here. This is what God intended. This is why he wants us to read this and study it. And so we're doing it.
Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this word. We thank you, God, for your tender, loving care of your people. What an encouragement that is for us 21st century Christians, Lord. And we know every promise you've made to the church and to your people will come to pass, Lord. And you will, you will be triumphant. You are triumphant and will be triumphant to the very end, Lord. And we are so grateful that you have called us out of darkness. You have led us through the wilderness. You've delivered us from the bondage of sin, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we, we are here today to continue to consecrate our lives, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which we pray are holy and acceptable to you, Lord, because it is our reasonable service, Lord. You've done it all for us, and it is our great joy to live a life for you. And so, Lord, thank you, God, for meeting us here tonight. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.